Let's now turn together to Lord's Day 12 of our Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 12, which speaks about the name of Christ. There was a title, Christ, and also what it means to be a Christian as we continue to go through the articles of the Apostles' Creed. Question 31 asks, why is he called Christ that is anointed? And our response is, because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us, and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Question 32 asks, Why are you called a Christian? And we answer, because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing so that I may as prophet confess his name, as priest present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and as king fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. Thus far our reading from our confession, from our catechism, May the Lord bless the reading of his word as well as the the confession and also the proclamation of his word this evening. And following the sermon, we'll respond by singing from hymn 38, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we are Christians. And that's how we refer to ourselves and that's how we're referred to by others. And depending on where you live and depending at what point in history, that name Christian can either be a positive term, a term with positive connotations, or it can be an insult. Now that's first of all how the name came into being. In Antioch, when the disciples were first called Christians, they were associated with this Christ, thought of by many as being this failed revolutionary This man from a part of the world that was well known for its lack of sense when it came to its position in the Roman Empire. And this Christ, who people said was the king of the Jews, he had died an ignominious death, a shameful death by crucifixion. He had been handed over by his own people to the Roman authorities. And these Roman authorities had no option, really, but to have him killed. Strictly for the sake of keeping the peace among these fractious and stubborn people. Now that was the connotation that the word Christian had in the days of the early New Testament church. And a piece of graffiti was uncovered on a wall near the Palatine Hill in Rome, and that was uncovered in 1857. And it's believed to be the earliest example of an image of Christ that survives, and it's not a complimentary one. And it's an image, it's a simple piece of graffiti scratched into plaster. And it was done sometime between the 1st and the 3rd century. And it depicts a man with the head of a donkey affixed to a cross. And beside him, beside this cartoon, this caricature, there's a picture of a young man. And underneath the picture is this this caption, Alexamenos worships his God. So it's an image, obviously an image of mockery. The donkey's head and the crucifixion would both have been considered insulting depictions, very insulting depictions indeed, in Roman society. 
And according to some sources, it, it seems to have been commonly believed at the time that Christians practiced something called onolatry, which is the worship of a donkey. And that was based on a misconception that the Jews worshipped God in the form of a donkey. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, he said that Christians and Jews both were were accused of worshipping such a deity. And he said this, he said, An apostate Jew who carried around Carthage a caricature of a Christian with ass's ears and hooves labeled Deus Christianorum Onocoites, the God of the Christians begotten of an ass. Now it's shocking and it's blasphemous, we know, and it strikes us as being that way, but this was the kind of image that the earliest Christians had to live with. Being a Christian means identifying yourself with the Christ. And where Christ is mocked, those who bear his name can expect nothing less. Now, Jesus said as much when he told his disciples that no servant is greater than his master and that if they persecuted me, he said, they are surely going to persecute you. Now, today, that name Christian may may have those negative connotations in one part of society. But in our pluralistic culture, where no one religion or philosophy is seen as having a corner or a monopoly on the truth, being described as a Christian doesn't necessarily have that kind of stigma attached to it, unless unless you happen to add the word fundamentalist, fundamentalist Christian, or conservative, conservative Christian as descriptive words. Now, that's in large part, as I said in this afternoon's message, because the church has allowed itself over the decades to be marginalized. And Christians have largely accepted our place in society as being just one more religious group among many. And so in the eyes of our culture, being a Christian is really no different than being a Buddhist or a Jew or a Mormon or a Scientologist. They're all religions. There's none more valid than any of the others. And as long as you don't try to work outside of the bounds of the privatized sphere of your religion, your status as a Christian is not going to harm you at all. But our catechism reminds us of the importance of Christ's title in Lord's Day 12. He is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The Messiah. He is the God's anointed one. He is our great prophet, priest, and king. And we also confess the importance of our title, the title that we bear, the title Christian. We are Christians. That's what defines us. We are, for good or for ill in this life, associated with Christ. That's our primary identifying mark. And the main meaning that the word Christian has, according to answer 32 of our catechism, is this. We are called Christians because we are members of Christ by faith. So this this says to us something very important. This says to us, first of all, that being a Christian, that Christianity is not a cultural designation. 
Now, there are people who identify themselves with their religion culturally. There are people who identify themselves as Jews, even though they're not practicing Jews. They're ethnically Jewish to some extent, but they don't live as Jews. And then there are Roman Catholics who are Catholic in name only. Now, they may never have darkened the door of the church since their baptism, but they still consider themselves to be Catholic. So, so it's a cultural thing. It's a designation that still defines you as a member of a certain group, but beyond that cultural significance, it really has no meaning. Now, that is not what it means to be a Christian. But neither is Christianity a term that is used primarily to describe someone's lifestyle. Now, this is often an error that children, young people fall into. We're Christians, therefore we live in this way. Or we're called Christians because we live in this way. We are not called Christians because we live in a certain way, because we don't participate in certain activities, because we view some lifestyles and some behaviors as being immoral. Being Christian is not primarily about having a Christian ethic or having Christian moral principles. You can live according to these principles and not be a Christian. That's a fact. You can live even in a community that governs itself according to these principles, but that doesn't make the community really a Christian community. It's not about having a certain heritage. It's not about having a set of traditional principles and standards that you use to guide your life, that you uphold and that you maintain. A true Christian, a true Christian is someone who is a member of Christ by faith and therefore shares in his anointing. As I said, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, God's anointed one. His baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, it made that anointing public. When the, when the Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove, when the voice of the Father was heard from heaven, making it clear that Jesus was his chosen one and that he approved of him. That was the public declaration of the anointing of the Christ. Jesus was not some self-appointed prophet. He was not merely some human pretender to the office of Messiah like so many pretenders who had come before him and would come after him. He was declaring that Jesus is our chief prophet and teacher. He is our only high priest and he is our eternal king. In the Old Testament, that anointing with oil was God's visible seal, his mark of approval on someone who held one of these three special offices. But at the same time, it was a sign that the person who had received that anointing was not working under his own authority or under his own power. It was the Holy Spirit who was equipping those who were anointed, and that anointing oil was a symbol of that equipping. And so as Christians, as members of Christ by faith, we share in that anointing. We are identified with him outwardly so that we are visible representations of him to the world. And we are also united with him inwardly so we share in that declaration of the Father, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And we share in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
And so that is the true significance, brothers and sisters, of, of that, that term Christian. This is not something, this must not be something that we take lightly. This is not a descriptive phrase that, that, describe, that simply identifies us as members of a particular ethnic group or a cultural gra- gathering or of a group of people that lives in a certain way. If I am a Christian, if you are a Christian, then what defines me and what defines you is our union with Christ. That's what defines us in the eyes of God, and that's also what must define us in the eyes of our fellow human beings. So to be a true Christian, you need to have faith in Christ. That faith is what unites you to Christ. He is the head, and we are his members. And so we're members of his body, we're part of his bride, and as members of that body, we share in his anointing. And so we are empowered by God. We're given what we need to fulfill that that calling. And just like Christ had that and has that threefold office, prophet, priest, and king, so do we. And so if we are to live out that calling, if we are to be in reality what we claim in the word that we say. If we say that we are Christians, if that's what other people call us, we need to be at work in this life full time to fulfill the calling of those offices. And so the first part of being a Christian is being a prophet. Now a prophet in the Old Testament we know had had two aspects to his calling. The first aspect of his calling was foretelling. It was telling about what was going to happen in the future, about God's promises, about God's threats. But he was more importantly called to be a foreteller, someone who spoke to the people on behalf of God, someone who gave them insight into what God required of them. Now, in some parts of the evangelical church today, people claim to believe in ongoing prophetic gifts. And they often think mainly about that first task, that foretelling, being able to speak definitively, authoritatively about what's going to happen in the future. But the prophet's main task, and you can see that as you read through the Old Testament, the major prophets and the minor prophets, the main task of the prophet was to preach the gospel, to act as a herald of the king, a messenger of the king, to call people to allegiance and submission to him. And so the question is, is the prophetic office, is that still a part of the New Testament church, the New Covenant church? And the answer is yes, it is, but it's not the same as it was before the canon of Scripture was completed. Before God made his ultimate final revelation in Jesus Christ, when he had that revelation uh, completed in Scripture. In that way, in terms of new revelation, God revealing new things to his people, that is no longer necessary. We have God's complete revelation in his word. He's given us everything that we need to know. So we have his revealed will, his secret will, is not given to us to know. We live by faith. So we make our choices based on God's revealed will. We make our plans based on God's revealed will. 
And we base that on what he has told us in no uncertain terms in his word. And we trust, based on his revealed will, that he is going to work all things for our ultimate benefit. Even if we don't know, and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But as prophets, as prophets sharing in the prophetic anointing of Jesus Christ, we profess his name. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's a serious warning. And it's a warning that we need to keep in mind as we think about our profession, as we publicly profess his name. But at the same time, that profession also reminds us of what the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Because he also said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so the prophetic part of our office, that confessing, that verbal, vocal confession of the Lord Jesus and the Lordship of Jesus and our allegiance to him, needs to be accompanied by the priestly part of our office, which is where we offer our bodies, we offer our very lives as a living sacrifice to him of thankfulness. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So we have that confession, and we also, as our, as our prophetic ministry, and we have this as our priestly ministry, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, like the office of prophet, the office of priest has been changed, has been transformed, fulfilled in Christ. Christ, as the great high priest, he offered himself as the final atoning sacrifice and the perfect sacrifice. And so because of that, there's no need for a continuing priesthood to offer those kinds of sacrifices today. But we still offer sacrifices. But the only kinds of sacrifices that we offer are thank offerings. Those are sacrifices of gratitude. And so we offer ourselves as living sacrifices of thankfulness. We read in Philippians 4, verse 18, I have received full payment and more, the Apostle Paul says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. So he's talking about the gifts that the Philippian church had sent to support him, which he calls a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And then also in Hebrews 13, verse 15, where it says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 
So what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 is we need, to, we need to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. So that means our entire, our, our entire life is to be offered to God. And then Philippians 4, Paul speaks about sacrificial giving. And he says that that sacrifice is acceptable and pleasing to God. So we have, brothers and sisters, we have every reason to offer that kind of sacrifice in our priestly role. What what better motivation could we have to, to live as priests than to please our God, to offer a sacrifice that is pleasing to Him, like a precious aroma of the incense offering. And the fact that this is a sacrifice, it also tells us something very important about what it is that we give to God. Because a sacrifice, by its very nature, is something that costs something. A sacrifice isn't something that we will give away easily. And if it is, it's not much of a sacrifice. Now, the prophets of, of Israel, they called out the people of Israel in no uncertain terms about the kinds of sacrifices that they were offering. They were offering blind and lame and substandard animals to God, and they were thinking that God could be bought off with these kinds of gifts. But God told him, God told them that they were in fact robbing him when they offered him anything less than their very best. And so, brothers and sisters, when we think about offering ourselves as living sacrifices before God and to God, we need to remember that this kind of sacrifice is going and has to cost us something. And I'm not talking about, you know, like people give stuff up for Lent. They stop eating chocolate or they give up watching television. What I'm talking about is giving of ourselves, denying ourselves, putting ourselves second and putting God first. And it's not about satisfying our own desires. It's about pleasing God. That is our priestly calling. And finally, as Christians, we are, as members of Christ, we are kings. Royalty. Now that's, that's an idea that's appealing to us. We were created to rule. We are royalty. We were created to have dominion over God's creation. We were created to rule on his behalf as his vice regents. Now Adam and Eve fall into sin. They caused that rule, that caused that, that rule, that dominion uh, to, to, to be a struggle for us. You may be familiar with the Two Ways to Live evangelism program. It's a very, very good program. And it explains the progress of redemption. And that Two Ways to Live program says this, that now as fallen people, we, are, we can neither rule ourselves or anyone else or creation as we were created to. We can't rule ourselves, we can't rule anyone else, and we can't rule creation as we were created to. But just as Christ restores us in our prophetic calling and in our priestly calling, he also restores us in our kingly calling We are being renewed in his image. We are in union with him. And so as kings, we can fight and we can overcome. We fight against sin and the devil in this life and we look forward to the time of that great consummation when we will reign with Christ eternally over all creatures. 
And so united to him, we can begin to do that in this life. We can begin to fulfill that mandate that God has given to us. But we know we still struggle. We struggle in that call to have dominion. We still exercise dominion wrongly in so many ways. We struggle with selfishness, with self-centeredness, with greed, with envy, with all of those sinful tendencies that make our rule less than what it should be. But at the same time, we need to remember that we do have the beginning of that obedience. We can obey God. We can do what He called us to do. That's important. It's imperfect, yes. It's stained by sin. Everything we do is stained by sin. But it's a beginning. And it's God who's at work within us. And so it is good. It is acceptable. It is pleasing to Him. And so as kings, what do we do? What do kings do? Kings fight. We put on the whole armor of God and we go into battle. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices of thankfulness, but that's not a passive task. Our kingly task shows us that we are meant to be active. We're not the kind of king who sits on his throne and then lets his valet and his footman and his manservant do all the work for him. But neither are we to be the kind of king who is a despot, who rules for his own sake, to have his own whims and his own desires fulfilled. But at the same time, neither are we that weak and cowardly king who cowers in fear of any threat. Now we can't be prophets on our own. We need the indwelling spirit to help us prophesy, to confess the name of Jesus to be ready to give an answer, a reason for the hope that lies within us. To confess Christ before men, even when it's difficult, even when it's dangerous to do so. We can't be priests. and, and In fact, we will not even desire to be priests, offering ourselves, our gifts, our resources, our lives for the sake of God and for the sake of our neighbor, apart from Christ and His Spirit. And we cannot be kings apart from Christ either. He is the great king. He is the model of kingship. He is the shepherd king. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's the shepherd who leaves the 99 in order to rescue that one who has strayed. He's the servant king. He's the king who kneeled in front of his disciples, who washed their feet, who cleansed what needed to be cleansed. He's the holy and righteous king who rules not for his own sake, but for the sake of his father. And he's the loving king who truly cares for his subjects. So that's the kind of kingship that we need to emulate. It's a kingship that's bold and courageous, but it's a, king, it's a kingship that expresses that boldness and that courage in humility. It's a kingship that fights, but it's a kingship that fights for the right things and fights against the right things using the right weapons. And it's a kingship that serves, not to be praised, not to be admired, but out of love. And it's a kingship that is real, lasting, eternal in its significance, not limited to ruling a patch of territory and a few people in this life alone. That 
is what it means to be a king with the Lord Jesus. So brothers and sisters, we are Christians. So we identify with the crucified one, with the Lord Jesus Christ, with our prophet, priest, and king. And we have been equipped by him to fulfill that office. And we need to remember, we need to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ in order to be Christians, not just in word, but in deed. In order for that title, Christian, to really mean something. That title, Christian, he's a Christian. To have somebody say that about us should mean more to us than any kind of plaudit or accolade that we could ever receive in this life. For us to say, I am a Christian, that should make our hearts swell with joy. And it should be the kind of boast that, that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verses 30 and 31, he says this, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It was written in Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So we must remember, brothers and sisters, our threefold office. When we forget it, as, as all too often we do, or when we minimize it, what ends up happening is all too often we make excuses for ourselves. All too often we easily succumb to temptation. We all too easily live like the world lives, or perhaps just a little bit different from the way that the world lives, instead of as new creatures in Christ. But we are Christians. And so as prophets, let us boldly profess our faith in Christ. As priests, let's offer ourselves as living sacrifices of gratitude to Christ. And as kings, let's fight. Because in Christ, as we said this morning, or earlier this afternoon rather, we are more than conquerors. Amen.